Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to the waiting room revolution. We are excited to introduce today, Dr. Daniel Shep. He finished medical school. He is now a first year resident in radiation oncology at McMaster University. And Dan did a two week rotation with Sammy during his residency training earlier this year. And because of COVID, it was all virtual. They weren't doing home visits, but they spent a lot of time talking about the patients and families that they were seeing virtually. And during that time, he started listening to the podcast. So we wanted to bring him onto the show to see how that little stint with Sammy might have influenced his thinking. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you. And I know that you mentioned that even after you did your rotation with me, you continued to listen to some of the episodes. So maybe we can start off by hearing what you think about them. It's a wonderful podcast and covers a huge breadth of topics that I think are very relevant and I think are very important and are similar to the ones that we spoke about. Um, I think that mainly when we worked together, we talked about a lot of deficiencies with patient education and patient understanding of their disease. And that's something that I see a lot of in a lot of my rotations, essentially every rotation that I'm in, even this early on in residency. Um, But I think going on through the podcast and seeing the focus on end of life, which we've also spoken about together before, and the focus on the importance of caregivers and how much I think you drew, you drew my attention to when we were working together, um, I think is also a great feature of it because it's something that really is not focused on enough in other parts of medicine. So I think that it's a great tool and a great presentation of, of problems and issues that I see all the time. So I, I think it's wonderful. But the piece that you just said something really interesting that I'd love to just know a little bit more about the the piece about you you see that pe- in your clinical rotations you said all of them you feel like patients don't understand their illness like where they are in their illness can you give me can you give us an example of that like what do you mean I mean one that I, that happened just very recently I'm currently on a medicine rotation and there was a woman who um, was in critical care um, a step down unit and was in there because um, she was very sick and uh, needed more support than could be offered on the ward. And she had some very severe infections that couldn't be treated only with antibiotics. She needed essentially surgical drainage of some of these infections and more in-depth treatment. Um, But she wouldn't be able to be offered this treatment. She She wasn't well enough to be offered them. And so essentially the decision came to the point where, where we had to say, look, these, these infections are not treatable. They can't be cured. Um, and so we need to change the focus of our care. We need to focus on you know, managing what we can with antibiotics, but to be realistic that these are things that you're going to um, have for the rest of your life and that they are going to severely limit your life. Um, and this was a particular case where this patient was immobile and had a very poor quality of life in general because of multiple comorbidities. And when I spoke to her about this, she seemed to think that, you know, what, what her goals were 
were to were to at this point was to was to fly and go to another part of the country and visit family and that with realizing that this was the end of her life and that this was something that was going to eventually take her life in, in probably quite short order that was what she wanted and it was something that was so outside of the realm of possibility to think that that was something that she could do it was so it was so unusual to hear that from her um that I, I realized that she really had no understanding of the severity of her multiple illnesses, things that she'd been living with for a long time. And so I, I, it, it, it dumbfounded me to, to hear that from her and to have to explain to her that, you know, really not only is your prognosis very short, but the amount of quality of life and the amount of improvement that we can see in your function is going to be very slight from here on out. And it was devastating for her to hear that. Um, but, but I think that was probably the main the main takeaway that I saw from it was that she really had no understanding of her illness and how severe it was. So she knew that she was going to die eventually from the total sum of all that was wrong with her. But to me, that sounds like she didn't really know what to expect with dying, like the dying chapter that she was going to go from however you saw her, maybe even improve and then at some point it was going to be lights out, Charlie. Do you think she just didn't appreciate that there's a downward dying process? I think that that's right. I think that when patients are told that they have a certain amount of time, that they can understand it intellectually um, and they can imagine a timeline in their mind, but oftentimes they don't really have a good idea of how to fill in that gap of what is going to happen between now and what is going to happen at the end. And I know that you've said many times, Dr. Winemaker, people don't just up and die. There is a process and there is a progression and there's a journey and we can see it coming. And I think that when people, when patients have an idea that they can continue to improve until the point that they die, it's something that is I think wishful thinking, unrealistic thinking, and and thinking that we need to do better to educate them around because it's it's something that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's like you said a wish, a magical wish, instead of a hope that's grounded in reality and truth. Um, first of all, Dan, I've got good news for you. You can officially call me Sammy. Oh, thank you, Sammy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and the second great news for me is that even though you've left the rotation, sounds like you're retaining a lot of the important uh, messages that we talked about. Yeah, I, I, I really do think so. I think that I learned a lot from um, my rotation with you, Sammy. And I think that your approach to medicine and your approach to palliative care was very refreshing and one that is applicable to all areas of medicine. So I'm doing my best to try to take these lessons forward with varying success, I, I should say. There are some experiences I could talk about that I'm proud of, and there are some that I am somewhat ashamed of. So, um, and I don't think that I would have those experiences now if I hadn't worked with you uh, previously. I think that it's, it's made a huge impact on me. It's almost like it would be, we take a step back is what did, what were some of the key things that were eye opening when you spent that two weeks 
with Sammy, even though it was virtual, it sounds like there were there were messages or experiences that really made you rethink some of your prior clinical training. Yeah, I think that well, the big one was to take a step back. That is the biggest lesson was to take a big step back with every patient, with every encounter, and try to see where they are in their illness journey, to see where they are in their treatment, and to think more broadly about how to approach them. Because I think that the way that many people, myself included, have spoken with patients and have had meetings and appointments with patients before is in the first appointment, when you first see them, the new consult, you give them a ton of information because you're going through the treatment plan, what it's going to be. You're going through the diagnosis. You may go through the prognosis depending on the disease. Um, Oftentimes it's not done though. Um, And you can give them a little bit about what to expect in, in, in some varying specificity. Um, And of course that's an enormous amount of information, much of which cannot be absorbed all at that time by the patient. And that's the new consult. Everything else is essentially a follow-up. And the follow-up is done in a small interval. You say, okay, well, since I saw you last, what has happened since then? And then what's the next step based on that? And so you look, okay, well, this is your blood work. This is your imaging. This is how you're feeling your symptoms. This is what your exam is. And this is how it's different from last time I saw you, you know, three months, six months, a year before. And so the next step is this. And I think that that's, that's fine in many cases. You, that needs to be done. But I think in addition to that, we need to take a step back every time and see, well, what does this change mean? What does this lack of change mean? And how is this going to affect things? Because there are so many things that people, patients, don't understand and don't appreciate when you're first telling them this information in the new consult, assuming you go through all the information that they do need to know. There's so much that is missed or is forgotten by the time you see them again. It needs to be revisited and it needs to be reinforced. It needs to be recontextualized, seeing how they are now and seeing how they've changed and how they've progressed or how they haven't changed and haven't progressed. I think it's important to revisit that. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing that I've, that I've taken away from it is to how to follow up and how to, on repeat visits, step back, look at the big picture, look at where they are going, where they've been and how it changes. Yeah, we call that zooming out. And it sounds like when you're able to do that, there's the opportunity to invite them into the conversation to know more if they want. But also there's a connection. It sounded like there's a connection to customize your order, which is how is that fit in with your understanding, your goals, what's important to you, right? All of those kind of connect together. Mm-hmm. Dan and I also talked a lot about how um, it helps with this feeling of physician helplessness as well. Um when you can zoom out and offer um, context and the scaffolding for patients and families to be able to make decisions, um, that it makes you feel like there'll never be a time where you have to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do for you. Because we can always provide context and information and help people plan. Mm -hmm. In addition, I think that what you mentioned, Sammy, just now, brings me to another lesson that I learned, which is that there's always um, there's always something to hope for. And I think that's another big worry that physicians have when they say there's nothing more we can do or they don't want to revisit this or, or, or mention death or dying. 
or what number of treatments are available, that we need to put things into context and see what is actually reasonable to hope for, what is reasonable to expect, what we can wish for and what we can prepare for. Again, to put this in the context of the podcast, we can talk about walking two roads and that um, we never take away hope, but what we hope for changes. And that was a big lesson that I took from you as well. So you mentioned that there are times that you feel very proud that you, you did well. Yeah, I, well, I can give one example. This is when I was in um, a clinical teaching unit, which is a general medicine rotation. And there was a gentleman, older gentleman, who had been admitted to us, and he had an aspiration pneumonia. And he had multiple admissions in the past, sometimes very lengthy admissions for the same problem. And he was essentially pinging back and forth between different levels of care and hadn't been, you know, home for many months. And this particular admission, he'd only been in for a short amount of time. And I'd been asked to see him for the first time um, when he had been in for, for several days. I looked over his case and I, you know, on the surface, you can see this is a gentleman, aspiration pneumonia, that's what we're treating. And this is a guy, he, he currently can't eat, but the speech language pathologist is working with him, trying to get him to swallow safely. His diet's been modified. Um, and he does continue to have some recurrent aspiration events. And so recently he's been put strictly NPO, that is to say he cannot have anything by mouth for his own safety. And looking at this, uh, my first step was to to call the family and because he wasn't really somebody who could talk to me about his, his medical history. He had other comorbidities um, that prevented him from being able to make choices in his own care and choices in his own treatment. And so I called his family to ask his family about what they thought about this. And looking at the big picture, stepping out, I could see more than just one man who was dealing with one infection, but rather this is a recurrent issue. And so I called his family and asked them about this, what they thought about this, and whether they've thought about this in the bigger picture. What is likely to happen from here on out? We have many months of experience with this gentleman where he has continued to lose function. He's continued to become more and more weak because he can't eat consistently. He's been in and out of hospital with many courses of antibiotics. Is the quality of life that he's getting right now with these measures something that he would consider to be appropriate? Is it something that he would want? Because if we continue going on this road, here's how I see it going. I see, I see it going the way that it has been going. I see it going that we will perhaps get him a little bit better on this admission, and he may be able to leave hospital for a short amount of time. But I, we're not fixing the underlying issue. And so I see him coming back into hospital in the future and continuing to get weaker and weaker, continuing to be bedbound, and continuing to lose weight and not get nutrition because he cannot eat. And so what is quality of life for him was my question. And can we provide it for him? It sounds like you were very satisfied um, with that clinical scenario. Um, because it sounds like you felt like you were helpful beyond just the task oriented, um, you know, issue at hand that you were able to back up look broadly, zoom out, and help the family understand the pattern that had already been set forth. Um, maybe they, you know, they didn't appreciate, uh, they appreciated that he was back and forth in the hospital with the same illness, but maybe you had to draw for them 
this downward decline that was happening in between hospitalizations, that he just wasn't bouncing back. Uh, you had to show them the in-between. I think that's right. And I think that it's also the, it was also a situation where I could tell on talking with the family that they were relieved at having had the opportunity to finally bring this up, that it was something that they had been each perhaps individually thinking of and had been considering, but they had never been given permission to talk about it. And they never mm-hmm. been given a push to really think about it um, or, or to really talk about it out loud. And I think that's a big problem because, because of course family doesn't want to, to take a step and say, I think that this is not working. And I think that we should change because there's no immediate new change that's occurred that forces it. It, It's Mm -hmm. only by look, by stepping back and zooming out that we can really see this larger gradual change. The small aspiration Mm -hmm. events have happened before the antibiotics, the IV fluids have happened before he's been weak. He's been delirious before, but looking back or stepping back is the only way that we can really take a look and see without one large major event, what we're doing for him and, and, and perhaps prompt a change based on this larger picture. But the wards are busy and you're busy. And so how much does time get in the way of being able to have these conversations? Is it really a barrier or, or not? A time is, is, of course, a, a huge barrier. I, I absolutely feel time is a huge barrier. And I feel this actively so often that, especially when I'm on call and working overnight, that I admit a patient and I think this person deserves a good conversation that I cannot give them right now. They, they mm-hmm. often very acutely need a good conversation that needs to be taken, needs to be done in a different context, but, um, but I can't provide it for them at that time. Um, I think that, you know, we're very, um, we're very lucky when we have the time to sit down with family and to sit down with patients and discuss things. I think it's one of my favorite parts of medicine is to do education about illness and to do, um, uh, to talk through cases with patients and their families. But it's something that we, we don't set aside time for, and we often don't have time for it amidst all of our duties. So, um, of course, we can do our best to try to make time when we have it, but we have to mm-hmm. actively think about when to do it. Um, it's not reasonable in a very full, for example, full follow-up clinic where you have one patient booked every 10 or 15 minutes for hours and hours mm-hmm. to say every single one of these is going to have a full illness conversation, but you need to plan for it for all of your patients at some point to say this patient's mm-hmm. going to get a half hour today. This patient's going to get a half hour today, for example. Mm-hmm. So I was just going to say, so what you kind of went back to the stories that you're proud of and then some that you feel like you missed the mark. So was there, is that sort of where you feel like, you know, less proud where you know that you wish you had the time to do it, but you just can't? No, I think that those are regrettable, certainly, but they're not my fault. (laughs) And so that's, it's not something I would feel ashamed of. I think it's more the cases where I felt uncomfortable and didn't have the courage to speak up or felt there was a barrier to me speaking up. And so I didn't, that I feel worse about. And even, even saying feel... proud, it, it seems like an odd, an odd thing to say, yeah. considering the situation, 
because I don't want to feel proud that, you know, I, I hate to think of the idea that I've hastened somebody's death and feel proud about it. But at the same time, I think it's important that we need to, to contextualize people's care in terms of their goals. And that was what I felt most proud of. Yeah. Uh, wait one second, Dan, you didn't hasten his death. He was dying. He just got the appropriate care um, at the very end, but he was clearly dying. So I think what you are, you're proud that you were able to connect the dots with the family. You were be able to give them information that allowed them to make truly informed decisions the next time he ran into a recurrence of his aspiration. But stopping the antibiotics and the fluids did not hasten his death. I, I appreciate that, Sammy. I think that I, uh, it's difficult for me to say because I think that, you know, it's possible he would have lived longer if he'd been given IV fluids and antibiotics. How long? Well, not long, How not long, long certainly. I think I know what you mean. Like we hear this from doctors, clinicians all the time that it's not about being proud because like breaking bad news or having difficult conversations isn't something to be proud of. But I think you're tapping into the idea that you're proud that you knew what the right thing to do is like in your gut and you were able to do it. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just, you know, even, and sometimes just being there and listening and saying nothing is the right thing to do. And that should be something to be proud of because that's so hard to do in medicine is to find the time to do the right thing, which is sometimes nothing at all, or just not being sure of what to do. Um, and just, you know, being with is, is, uh, the right thing to do. So I think that is a hard thing to do in medicine and yeah. Dan, so why is it that, um, you're able to lean in now? Seriously, it doesn't sound like much happened for you be, to be able to shift the way you were approaching these difficult situations. Um, so what, what was it that, like, seriously, what would it take for someone else like you um, to be able to feel that confidence? Um, I, I don't know. I think that it would be it would be to, to think about, as I was saying before, thinking about patient care in a larger context, to think about their full journey before approaching any particular step of it. And I think that's particularly true as a resident because you take on patients who are being cared for by other doctors. You're not, you don't have your own roster of patients. You haven't seen them since the beginning, um, which certainly happens when you're a staff physician as well, but, but less so. And so in order to I think give them appropriate and good care. You need to look at their care and context and you need to look, just think about what happened before they came in here, mm -hmm. not just a couple days before, but a mm -hmm. long time before. Think about well, the first time they got this illness, their diagnosis, if they're coming in with heart failure exacerbation, when did they have heart failure diagnosed? How bad was it then? How bad is it now? How have their functions changed since then? How is that affecting them at home? Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. how much do they understand about how much this is likely to continue and where it's going to go from here? I think it's all very relevant questions to providing the care that you're giving them in hospital, even though the decision you're making about their medication right now is how much Lasix they should be on, for example, how long to continue their antibiotics for this infection, for example, um, that in order to communicate with them and communicate with their families, you need to look in a larger context about their disease journey. 
You know, Dan, part of what we are trying to do on this podcast is also to share stories of where things don't go quite as we planned, right? So we can learn from them. And I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sharing a story where perhaps you witnessed something that maybe didn't go as ideally as you would have thought or left you feeling a bit uncomfortable, or maybe you felt afterwards you wish you had more courage to speak up at that moment. So this is again on my gynecologic oncology rotation. And um, this was a case where a woman who was still quite young and had been living with cervical cancer for quite some time um, was coming in. She had, I can't remember the specifics of the case, but long and short of it is that she had already had surgery. It was, it was already quite advanced at the time when she was diagnosed many years ago. She'd already had surgery. She had had radiation and she had had chemotherapy and she had recurred and she had had chemotherapy again, a different agent. And now she had recurred again. And she was coming back for consideration of what, what next to do. And this particular patient was um, cared for by a gynecologic oncologist who was not present that day. And her patients were being seen by a different doctor, a different surgeon. And so it was this other doctor who came in. So again, first time seeing this patient who had to tell her, this is what's happened. And this is what's, what's the likely next step going to be. And I think that the long and short of it was that there may be other lines of chemotherapy that we can use, but there may be another type of targeted agent that may be better, but we have to see about whether it's available on a clinical trial. And so what I'd like to do is I'll see about that. I'll contact the doctor who usually sees you, who will be back next week. I'll make an appointment for you next week to see that doctor. And then you can talk about it with her then after we get word back about this. I think that's a reasonable plan. And the patient then says, okay, that's fine. I'll see the doctor next week, but I'm still concerned about this new recurrence. Is this something that I can die from? And I was, again, just like the patient I'd seen before, the one who didn't know what was reasonable when she was dying of these infections, what to expect from her future when she was bed bound. This woman asking if she could die from this was a question that floored me because I would think that somebody who has had cancer for many, many years and has had from the beginning incurable cancer because of how advanced it was should have been talked to about many times about how this is a progressive life limiting illness and that it will eventually come back and it will in all likelihood kill you that you will die from this illness. And the doctor who I worked with, who was talking to the patient, heard this question, can I die from this? And what she said was something akin to the following. The natural history of this disease is to continue to grow. But the nodes that we see right now are unlikely to cause you symptoms. That was the response. And in retrospect, and even at the time, I wish I could have <laughs> said something and said, well, that didn't really answer her question, did it? She asked if she could die from this. And the answer is yes. Um, it's, a, it's a very simple question. And she was asking it directly. And because we are so uncomfortable talking about death, especially for patients who we're caring for and trying to make better, it was something that 
I think the doctor I was working with was uncomfortable talking about as well. And I felt horrible not answering that patient's question. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't do anything. And that's why I was ashamed. Because mm -hmm. I knew it felt wrong. And I think that in my mind, I might have justified it saying she has an appointment next week and, and that doctor will go through it. But it may not have happened. And she deserved an answer. Thanks, Dan. I know that um, is not an easy story to tell to put yourself out there. So I appreciate that. One of the questions I was going to ask you is, what would you, what would you tell your fellow residents? Like, what advice do you have for fellow residents? That's a good question. I think that the main advice would be to take time. I feel like I'm a broken record saying this. Take time to step back. It's it's vital to to with all of your patients at some point to step back and think about what their full journey has been like up until now and 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 after this. It's 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 game-changing when it happens and it gives you such a better understanding of their experience um mm. it takes time and it's difficult and i think that we are not uh great about it in the in most cases so you have to make an effort to do it um because mm. nobody's going to necessarily expect it um but it's it's vital that's right and i think um unfortunately it's the pressure of time uh, and time constraints that I think usually um, interfere with people um, admitting that what you did was acceptable. You know, you took a lot of time to speak to the family. It took time to describe everything and get the history from them. Um, when you could have been spending that time discharging five other people or admitting five other people. So um, there is this kind of gerbil on a, um, wheel experience in the hospital, right? And we're valued. The things that are valued are churning people in and out and so that they don't have to stay in the hospital for long periods of time. And if so, if the value is in, out, in, out, and you pause to look at the scaffolding and do stargazing and um, long gazing and historical gazing... <laughs> <laughs> um, I can see how that, you know, is sort of, um, against the thread or the grain of the pace of some of our healthcare settings, but it is the right thing to do, Dan, um, definitely. And you will be rewarded in different ways. Your staff person won't say, good for you. You saw two people today and this other resident saw 20, <laughs> but you will be rewarded because you'll know that you made such a difference for that family and that patient. And someone else can discharge everyone else. It's a difficult balance to walk. Certainly. I think that, yeah. um, as you were saying before, the time constraints are a huge, huge limiting factor. One of my favorite things about working in palliative care was being able to have long conversations with patients and being able to really get to know them. Um, and it's something that you seldom get in a lot of other areas of medicine, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I went into I know, oncology, uh, because you see patients. 
Sorry, go ahead. That, that, sorry, that comes up a lot. Like it, when people come and work with me, they say, well, you know, Dr. Winemaker, that's all good. Um, but you get to spend, you know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes um, driving around, seeing people. I remember you and I, I think, had this discussion too. And I think what I um, said to you, Dan, was that the reason why it takes me so long and I have to spend so much time is because I'm entering in. Uh, at the very late stage in the 11th hour, as we say, having to do this massive rehaul, um, overhaul, whatever you want to call it, um, going back, 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 and then, okay, what does it mean now? And then looking forward, uh, you know, over an entire illness journey. Um, and I would like to think that if someone was involved in a person's care and had some continuity with that person, that they chip away uh, at these conversations slowly over time. It doesn't have to be one massive event. Uh, it can be, you know, again, over time. And if you don't have that continuity and you just enter into a patient's life in a moment, I still think there's always something, a nugget. <laughs> or even the way you dictate your note to say that if, you know, if you're the family doctor who's going to see this patient next, I think this person would benefit from a big picture discussion or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that some conversations by necessity take long, no matter if you've seen the patient many times before, we'll see them again serious illness conversations take a little while um, and you need to make time for them. But I think that having the context already in there, preparing them already beforehand mm -hmm. uh, and knowing mm -hmm. that you'll be there afterwards makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. You know, our podcast has a lot of listeners who are caregivers, past and present. And at the beginning, you mentioned the importance of family. So I'm wondering if there's a story there that really underscores how essential caregivers are as healthcare partners? Um, I think that it was, it was more of a broader sense of thinking about family and support because I, I really connected to the idea that somebody mentioned one of the stories in the podcast about they felt like doctors never even looked at them, even with them being at every appointment for you know years, they never looked at them. And I feel like in some ways, when I was in medical school, that was almost encouraged in, in, a, in some contexts, um, I think that in many cases, it's easier to talk to a family member than it is to talk to a patient. Um, and so we're told, oh, talk to the patient first, like don't take, you know, take their word mm -hmm. first and, um, and they are the star, like everybody else's support. Um, but like, you know, certainly in many cases in geriatrics, you know, we're always taught to get collateral history and, and, you know, how to, to speak to multiple people. But for the most part, I feel like the caregivers has never really been given very much import. And that was another thing that I thought was so um, striking when I was working with you, Sammy, was um, I can think of one example where there was a patient who was living with a friend of hers, a close friend of hers, and had been moved in with her and was sleeping in her living room and had been there for a long time, like at least months. And this this woman was like a saint she she was doing everything for this patient and it felt like she was getting no recognition and all that she wanted 
all that the caregiver wanted was, you know, she said, I'm happy to do everything for her. She was feeding her. She was changing her. She was caring for everything for her. But she said, I, I can't have her die in my home. Like, I, it's not something I'm, I'm comfortable with. And it, it became this huge thing because it seemed like the caregiver was powerless to do anything. Like, she, it was not her right to demand that this patient not die in her home. And that was a big part of our meeting. I'm not sure if you remember this, Sammy, but a big part of our meeting was to say, you have done, you have done way more than the vast, vast majority of any friend would ever do for this person. And mm -hmm. if that is where your limit is, then that is something that will be respected and must be respected. And a big mm -hmm. part of that meeting was talking to the patient and saying, this is what, what needs to be done. Like, this is where the limits are of where this care is. And I think that it's something that is um, that is not emphasized enough is the importance of caregivers and how I, I think in in general what my experience with you has taught me is to try to give them their own space to talk, not about the patient, which is how I was initially taught. The caregivers are helpful as collateral history or as you know, mm -hmm. adjuncts, but as their own person, mm -hmm. as their own part of the care team because that's who they are and they need to be respected as such uh, mm -hmm. yeah so I, I think it's it's hugely important and something I, I, I I'm, I'm sad to say I, I didn't really think about as much as I do now I think about it a lot more mm -hmm. now so we're almost at the end of time uh, was there anything else you wanted to say Dan yeah go ahead what, what else so, so I think the say? other thing that I wanted to mention that I felt very um, strongly about when I was working with you, Sammy, was contextualizing patients' care and their journey um, with the end in mind, and that our decisions for any treatment, especially for somebody with a progressive life-limiting illness, needs to be taken with the idea of prognosis and the idea of their end, their death in mind. And I'll give you an example mm -hmm. of why this was so important, uh, and one maybe I should have mentioned earlier because this was when I was working with a doctor who was incredible, just incredible with his patients and such a great communicator and so um, so caring. This is when I was in neuro-oncology. And this is a patient who had glioblastoma multiform, which is, as you know, is uh, devastating cancer of the brain that we typically treat um, with surgery if possible, and then chemotherapy and radiation, and then chemotherapy, and then you wait for it to recur, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. And this was a woman who had previously had all of those treatments. She had surgery, she had radiation, she had chemotherapy, and she had recurred. And um, she may have had another course of chemotherapy, I'm not sure. But when I saw her, she had had a previous appointment a couple of weeks before, and she had had a significant decline in her function. She had had um, just a, a terrible decline. And what the doctor I was working with did was he gave her a course of steroids, which are something that will decrease um, swelling in the brain and can improve a lot of symptoms, sometimes miraculously, um, but they are temporary. And they are a treatment that is not a cure, but is something that will temporize and make symptoms better for some time, but eventually they'll come back. And uh, once they come back, steroids will have less of an effect. And when I saw this patient, she'd been given the course of steroids two weeks prior, and she had improved significantly, as was promised, as was, was hoped for. And the daughter I was speaking to at the time said that it was an incredible two weeks, that 
the patient had gotten so much better. They had invited family from across the country to come and see them. They had gone on a little trip. They had had all this quality time and all these memories that were made. And she wouldn't trade that time for anything in the world. And by the time I saw her, I think some of the symptoms had already started to come back. And she was having side effects from the steroids as well. Um, and what I thought was so important about this was that all those memories and all of that time that she gained was only significant and was only made significant because they knew that it was a last ditch effort. They knew that it was the one last time that she'd be able to improve with these symptoms before getting worse. And if it had not been contextualized like that, if the doctor had said, your symptoms have gotten worse, I can give you some steroids to make them better for a time, then they might not have taken all this pain to invite family. They might not have taken all this pain to mm -hmm. reflect and to cherish the time that they had while their mm -hmm. symptoms were better. It was mm -hmm. only by putting things in context that they were able to really take advantage of this. And they were so, so, so thankful for it. And it's mm -hmm. something that um, I could so easily see going the other way that they could so mm -hmm. easily see going, I got these steroids and I got better for a bit and now I'm worse. And now what? Cause they didn't mm -hmm. know. Because they wouldn't know unless they're specifically told, after this, it will progress and you will continue to get worse. But this can give you a bit of time. So your story is an example of the power of, um, you know, hope and reality mixed in together so that, you know, people can spend the last couple of weeks um, intentionally how they want with no regrets. Or years. Or years, Yeah. You know, Dan, um, I just want to say that, again, when you spent that very short period of time with me on rotation, um, I knew you were very special, very deep thinking, very thoughtful, um, and could see, you know, the big picture clearly. Um, and, you know, I'm so happy and grateful that you took the time to come back and join us on this podcast months later after the rotation and share some of your reflections with us and your stories, which are so meaningful. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's been a real, real pleasure. Um, I, I really, really appreciate uh, being invited on and being able to um, reflect on these experiences. And, and I mean, thanks again so much for um, teaching me all these lessons because I think they have had a huge impact on me and hopefully they will continue to make a difference uh, in my practice in the years to come. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.